Let's take it to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, we praise you and thank you for your work, for the privilege we have to see it go forward, for answering our requests and opening these doors. Father, we pray for these children in Rhode Island, also in Connecticut, throughout New England. We're going to tell hundreds about the Lord Jesus Christ, and some of them, perhaps most of them, the way this ministry has gone, will accept Jesus as their Savior. And it'll be because of your grace and your provision we continue to beg you, Father, send workers into the harvest for its white. Father, we praise you for this privilege of just being able to see this work and ask on behalf of these children and their families that the gospel would go forward unhindered here in New England. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've assembled for fellowship with God and his word tonight. I'll read from uh, what I've often opened with about the times in which we find ourselves. Right about the middle of my Bible, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The master scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And that king then speaks, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And now comes wisdom. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in Him. The time now is to take refuge in the Son. The time now is to honor the Father. The time now is to be about our Father's business because the judgment is coming. Just as sure as the model prayer the Lord Jesus gave the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come. Just as sure as that includes a request for God's will to be done on earth, we are asking for God to bring his certain judgment on planet earth, his certain judgment on rebellion and wickedness against him. And it is our privilege to recognize right now is the time to serve him under pressure. Well, I've uh, assembled a message, I've uh, prepared a message for you tonight on mission. And the question we're asking on, on mission number five is, what is the mission? So what is the mission? We said, what are we doing here? Well, God told us it's his mission. We said, what about our problems? Isn't that what we're supposed to be dealing with? No, the problems happen while you're handling the mission. The mission is not your problems. The problems are uh, something that you deal with while you're doing the mission. So yes, we need to manage problems. Yes, we have to deal with hardships, especially with people, with circumstances, with systems. But that's not the mission. That's, that's uh, something that goes alongside while we're conducting the mission. So, so uh, the, the next thing we said was we need uh, to deal with time, the great problem of time. I don't have enough time. I've got too little time. I don't, I don't have enough time. That problem is that... Um, I'm busy and I need to get more done and I don't have enough time. And we say, wait a second, God is the time Lord. He's got all the time you need. What about the people with too much time? They're bored. 
oh, I just can't possibly live this life without frittering my time away. I have to get into pastimes. Let's get into sports. Let's become players of games. Let's do whatever it takes not to remember that we're here for a purpose. And we said the problem of too much time is a problem of immaturity, and you need to figure out God's actually giving you just enough time to do what he wants with your life. So we redeem the time in Ephesians chapter 5. And then we said, based on the concern of how much time we have, that we desperately need guidance. We need God to come through and tell us exactly what to do with our limited resources because they're passing quicker than we think. We spend our time to make money, and then we realize, wait a second, however much money I got for that time could never be worth the time that I used to get that money because the time is something I'll never get back, and it's so fleeting and so precious. And we said, I hope you understand this on the use of your time. If you're working in a job, if you're preparing to work in a job, never think that your time is worth so-and-so dollars. That's not how it works. I know that you get paid in hours or get paid by salary in months or years, but that's not true. What you do with your life is for God's glory and it is of whatever value he assesses it to have. And what someone can afford to pay you for the use of your time, that's what you get paid. But that is not what your time or your life is worth. And the work that you do ought to be much more valuable than the money you're receiving for that work. Because it's what you've done. It's your creativity. It's your productivity. And that's a whole different way of thinking in this life. So now we've moved on through some of the preliminary matters. And now I want to get into the passages that describe our mission. So what is the mission? And let's start off with what it's not. (laughs) What the mission is not. That is not, as I mentioned uh, last week, uh, uh, to borrow from John Belushi, it is not to get the band back together. That's not the mission. The mission is not to uh, go back down memory lane and remember how it was in the good old days. The mission isn't just whatever we want. God's actually pretty specific. So the first thing, the mission is not to make ourselves happy or satisfied. Now that's often what people think the American dream is, that if you work hard, you can get enough together to enjoy your life. Provide for your family and let them have a good life. The good life is actually the godly life. And it won't be measured in dollars or cents or in 401ks or in what kind of real estate package that you end up with when in your final set. That's not what the good life is. The good life is the godly life that says, my life counted every day for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it won't be primarily focused on making myself comfortable, happy, or satisfied. If we do that, it's going to be like driving a car looking down. Who's, uh, who's learned to drive recently? Some of you have. You don't drive by looking down at the instruments. and You glance at the instruments, but you don't stare at them. You don't drive by looking at the hood of the car. This is a good way to crash and die. The way you drive is you look out. You look where you're actually going. And all the stuff that's going on with the car, the instruments, your, yourself, your coffee, not doing your nails, whatever it is while you're driving, these are things that are not driving you got to look out to where we're actually going, and it's not to make yourself happy. The second thing that it's not, the mission that God has given us is not politically motivated or politically focused. This is so vital to get because the Bible speaks a lot to political matters. It talks about rulership and governance and freedom and responsibility and institutions of delegated authority. And this is all through the Word of God. But the mission the Lord Jesus Christ has given you and me is not politically focused or motivated. And what I mean is the kingdom is coming. 
The kingdom is coming. You and I are not bringing it by our evangelism work. It is not advancing the kingdom's approach. I heard one preacher misunderstand something Jesus had said and said, well, we have to be careful about going into all the countries of the world because by the time we get to that last country, that's when Jesus comes back. As though our evangelism efforts are determining the calendar which God has fixed by His authority, Acts 1-7. No, that's not how this works. That once we go to all the countries, then Jesus returns, so let's hold off. You know, that's, not a, that's just so sloppy eschatology. That's not the point. We are to go to all the nations. And, and uh, I heard one, someone else say, well, we did this in the first century. The early church did that. That's what the apostles were, and that's done. All the nations have been reached. Now, all the nations have to be continually disciple-made. We have to work on all the people of the world, not one nation, Israel, but all the nations, until the Lord does come back. Lo, He's with you to the end of the age. So we go international. We work within the national structures in which we find ourselves. We deal with divine institutions like national entity, like human government, and we do have a biblically-based view of these things. But that's not the mission. And so when you, when you focus on that as though that is the mission, it's a misuse of resources. It's a misappropriation of resources. And so this is why you can have Christians that seem to be doing mission-focused work who are confused about American politics. You say, how can you think this way about what you're doing for the Lord in terms of evangelism, but yet you have no idea about the responsibility of stewarding your resources and not having the government steal them to give to people that will not work, for example. Just bad government. That's just bad, uh, uh, overbearing government that is reducing freedom and forcing uh, wicked redistributive change. I'll even say, well, the next redistributive change. That's evil. And the Bible describes it in detail, but it's not our mission. See, you and I, as I said last week, remember, you can serve the Lord Jesus Christ and his mission under communist oppression in the 1950s and 60s in Soviet-controlled Romania and make disciples in prison between beating sessions. That's the story of Richard Wormbrand, the writer of the, the very important book, Tortured for Christ. You could be in prison for 17 years of your adult life, separated from your families, forced to watch your firstborn son turned into a godless communist as far as uh, his profession goes, where he denies Christ, says he hates his father, and they can trot him out to you between beating sessions to see your son as he grows up and you don't get to see him grow up and be told that he's now a communist and he hates Jesus as a Christian pastor. And you can find yourself under this wicked, evil system of communism and socialism and godlessness that is the product of a lot of bad ideas from Europeans. It's not a black and white issue. It's a bunch of Europeans that had really bad, satanically inspired ideas that destroyed the lives of millions of people in the 20th century. And I love to preach about the wickedness and evils of communism, but that's not the mission. You can do the mission under communism. It's harder. There's a lot more fingernails being ripped out by the roots in that system when you proclaim Christ. The Chinese have recently cracked down again on Christianity. The Chinese church is blossoming. And the, the, the new uh, signification or whatever of the country to go back and, and get everybody back under the supreme ruler and back to this communistic mindset 
it's this constant ebb and flow of totalitarianism and, and burgeoning freedom where the gospel is easier to preach. Do you know in China it's illegal to proselytize, to evangelize minors? But people are bravely doing it because like Shadrach and his friends, we don't have to obey you on this one, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to give you an answer. You can throw us in the furnace, but we're going to tell the children about Jesus. That's the nature of the work outside of freedom. We live in a bubble of freedom here. You can do the mission without, without political uh, focus, but I love doing the mission here because it doesn't hurt as bad and it's not as dangerous and we should thank God every day for the freedom we have here. But the mission is not the politics. Uh, if you're involved in politics, I want you to take a mission focus and remember why the freedom. Freedom to go barbecue on the 4th of July is not the reason we have freedom. Freedom to proclaim Christ to these children in Rhode Island, that's why I have freedom. And we're seeing the governmental uh, uh, authorities, the people appointed in, in elected positions and designated positions by elected officials with the right to say what can happen in the schools, at least the administrators to... to, to, to execute the law, saying, yes, come in, we love it. That's a beautiful thing that would not happen so easily in a less free country or in one of these totalitarian communist regimes. By the way, by the way, those of you who think um, that this is not an issue of socialism, totalitarianism, communism, you watch the 30s and under, they believe in a majority position that socialism is a better way. That's where the machine guns come out because when the people that control the money and the property also control the enforcement of government with the machine guns, that's the problem of the 20th century the, and, and really all of, of history. This experiment where we've had freedom of the individual and a nation of laws, this liberal, classic liberal or free thing that we've enjoyed, it took a lot of blood and has taken a lot of blood to maintain. And it's the... Um, minority event in history. It's, it's actually a very rare thing. And so the children are, are willing to sell their freedom for slavery in a majority position. And I'm talking about the 30s and under. So what does that look like for our children? Either they're going to wise up, and that happens some, or we're headed to um, something we can't recognize. And the idea of changing our constitution seems impossible until you start talking about the, the normal flow of history. Civil war. Civil wars, and, uh, and uh, we're due. And I'm not preaching war. And, but I'm saying that's not our mission. You can be on mission in a war. You can be on mission in a minority position where you hold freedom for everyone, and they kill you for it. The mission is not whatever you feel is the mission. <laughs> right? Well, I feel like the Lord wants me to... Well, wait a second. What did he say? Well, I don't really want to pay attention to that because that would involve reading and thinking and concentrating. So we don't want to do that. We just want to feel our way. And isn't Christianity where we go feel something? No, Christianity, the Christian life is where you think and your emotions follow the thinking of God that he's given you through the word of God. And the Holy Spirit uh, teaches you this content of the word of God so that your feelings do align I, I was overwhelmed as Ryan was given his report about what God has done in two short years in Rhode Island and how the, 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 the pressure points where we're held back 
are all one by one blowing out. And now it's just how much is God going to push flow? How many people are going to go into this work and preach the gospel to these children? Because now we're, we are already needing more people to do it than we have. We have more opportunities and invitations to go to schools than we have adults to go service these clubs. It's amazing. And I, you know, I'm emotionally uh, excited about that. I am choked up at the thought. And believe me, that's not how I was uh, formatted in my old sin nature. This is not my natural bent to consider that valuable, but because I've become more calibrated to God's mission from his word, my emotions have followed. Isn't that how your life goes as a Christian? I'm looking around at the crew tonight. This is the advanced class, okay? This is the advanced class. You're here on Wednesday night in freedom. You know, the Wednesday after 9-11, 9-11 might have been a Wednesday, but we had Bible class. Next time we had Bible class or or church service, after the, the, the Twin Towers came down, church was full. You know, it, we're, we're just rich. We're just lazy, rich people. And I mean, spiritually lazy. And, we've, and we haven't felt the need, but it'll come. I was just talking to a friend about our prayer life. Doesn't your prayer life get better when you get under pressure and you're suffering? When, you're, when you're, things are in question, you're not sure how it's going to turn out. Don't you spend more time in prayer? And then when, things, when the pressure lets off, don't we kind of like don't pray as much? And the Lord's like, I really like that prayer time. Really enjoyed when you came and talked to me. Let's have some more of that. <laughs> I'd rather, uh, Lord, let's do that without the pressure. But anyway, uh, we feel uh, that, that this should be our mission, whatever we feel like, and that's not what God says. And the mission is not comfortable. The mission is not your comfort or my comfort. It's not. Well, you know, to do what you're talking about out of these passages of the Bible, I would have to step out of my comfort zone. I just feel really more comfortable sitting down and not talking to anybody and just having my latte. I just really really want to to just kind of have my, my life my way and just do what I want to do. And, and why is that a problem? Well, that's not what you're called to do. It's, we're not called to comfort. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ never suffered under the weight of a mortgage because in his adult ministry, he didn't have a house. He had a mission. And these other things, the house wasn't necessary. He needed to be busy. Well, what, what did he do late at night after a day of ministry? Well, in one instance in Matthew 14, he went up on a mountaintop to pray while he was sending his disciples to row across a lake that was blowing contrary to their travel. So he sent them to the gym, and he went up to pray and spent some time with his heavenly father on a hilltop. That's what Jesus did after a day of ministry. I'm sure they eventually slept somewhere. I'm sure they weren't sleeping in the street uh, playing guitar for, uh, for nickels and stuff. They weren't beggars. But, um, and they had support along the way, but it, w- it was provided as needed. They were committed to their mission, and it was to make disciples. So the mission isn't these things, making ourselves happy, or it's not politically motivated. It's not what we feel the mission is, and it's not comfortable. However, you won't be satisfied or happy as a Christian apart from God's mission for you. You want to be happy? Do you want to be happy for the rest of your life? Don't finish that. I used to love oldies. I listened to oldies with my dad in the car. <laughs> he would love that song, which didn't apply to him at all. And if you don't know what that song is, well, that's an Easter egg you're going to have to go searching for, your, for on your own. But anyway, um, you're not going to be happy as a Christian if you're not on mission. And when you are on mission, watch. 
you're going to find yourself happy. You're going to find yourself fulfilled, satisfied, enjoying what God has you doing when you're on mission. The, the mission isn't politically motivated, but the kingdom is coming. And our mission work will impact the kingdom. I like to say it this way. We're recruiting for those who will rule with Christ in the coming kingdom. Now, a lot of sloppy kingdom language happens in evangelism discussion. There's a lot of sloppy, well, I'm serving the kingdom. And I have one friend that talks about big kingdom, little kingdom. Well, you're just trying to serve your own little church kingdom, but I'm serving the big, you know, the universal kingdom. Well, okay, let's be really clear. Paul does summarize his work as preaching the kingdom. But the question is, what does the kingdom have to do with the work of the mission? It is not that we're in some sort of spiritual, goofy, uh, don't you love the kingdom? Isn't it great? The bouncy house is for everyone. We're not in the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom. We are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. But that's our, our, our citizenship. We are not operating in the coming kingdom yet, but we belong to it. And we can't be removed from it. It is our identity. We are in other words, marked out for a future administration that's coming. And when you bring someone to Christ, when God uses you to proclaim the gospel and the person believes, that is populating the administrative arm of this coming kingdom. And this gets into Christian eschatology, biblical eschatology or the end. But let me just say the kingdom is coming and what you're doing does impact it. Whatever we feel is the mission. Okay, the mission isn't whatever you feel it is, but as you grow in the Word, as you put on Christ, as you walk by the Holy Spirit and you grow spiritually, you'll become more interested in, in the mission. You'll become more interested emotionally. It will connect you in a way that you need, it, need to connect as a, as a fully functional human being. The old language, before we invented emotion because we're mechanically thinking emotion, what thing, the thing that motivates or moves, you know. Before we did that, the word was affections. Now, if you say affection, it means that you're goofy about someone. That means you're, you know, uh, Disney called it Twitter-pated, right? You're emotional. But, but affections used to be a really good old word for what we call emotions or feelings. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest reformed theologian of his day and certainly the greatest reformed theologian uh in america in his day and he's up there and bb warfield be right there with him and i'm not a reformed theologian uh but i'm a dispensationalist and there's a difference there's several important differences but he he wrote a book one of his greatest works was called religious affections and he was trying to help people working through the first great awakening and the, the, the big emotional uproars that were happening. And there were people that were barking at the moon and calling it the Holy Spirit's work and stuff. I mean, there were all kinds of things that they were blaming on the Spirit. And they would read a verse in the Scripture and say, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then they'd go howl at the moon and say, see? And no, that's not a good correspondence between what the Scripture says and what you're experiencing. And so Edwards was writing religious affections to help you understand, help the, his, his generation understand, that there is an effective or an emotive effect of God's Word and the spiritual life, but it isn't necessarily what these people are calling the fruit of the Spirit in their emotional outpourings. And so he tried to, to parse out what it was, and some of his ideas are, I think, pretty sound. But the best things he says are you really can't prescribe your experience to someone else's experience. 
Uh, and and uh, we're not really motivated in our love for God by the benefits that we get primarily from Him as much as the beauty of His righteousness and His holiness. That's probably the best thought He gives you, is that if you really want to experience true, uh, effective love for God, then think about His character and His righteousness and fall in love with the beauty of His holiness. Beautiful thoughts. Absolutely. I'm, I'm with him. It's not a statement in Scripture, necessarily a big point of Scripture, but I think it's a great point to meditate on the character of God. What I'm trying to say here is your feelings need to develop along the trend of God's plan for you as stated in Scripture. We're not static just feelers where, well, this conforms to my feelings and I like this. I mean, as a recipient of content, as the marketplace of the ideas, of the things that are being put out there and the information explosion for you to grab things, some things hit you emotionally and others don't because that's where you are. You're a consumer. But we don't treat the Bible that way. We recognize the Bible as the, the water that causes the plant to grow and the flowers that bloom, the emotions, the, those responses are going to change as that nourishment influences us so we're not to consider ourselves god as the recipient that determines whether something's good or bad we take god's word and let it change us i once told a beloved friend that the word of god if you'll if you'll pay attention to it will take over your life and that person said i don't want it to and i said that's the saddest thing i've heard all day it's been a tough week but that was a really that was a down i was a clunker i don't want it to take over my life i said what a, what a shame for you i didn't say but i thought what a shame for you what the mission isn't is comfortable, but we can grow comfortable in new arrangements as God matures us. This is called stretching. The Word of God and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stretch us. It's going to make us where we become comfortable lifting weight we didn't know we could lift. You're going to use muscle groups. You ever go to the gym with, and get a trainer and then the next day you're like, I didn't know I had muscles back there that hurt. You know, I'm not comfortable, but I'm stronger. And now I'm more comfortable with, with weight on that motion I wasn't ready for before. In other words, we have to change. We're all in, in, in transition. We're all changing. So you and I can grow comfortable in new arrangements as God matures us. And watch this. This doesn't mean we compromise truth. It doesn't mean as we change, we change for the worse. It means that we come to value what God values and use the means he's provided. And that might change uh, what we become comfortable with. I'm not comfortable speaking Spanish. But if I needed to minister in Spanish, you know what I would do? If it became that this is the call that I need to go do, that that's what, I, what God has for me, you know what I would have to do? I would have to get comfortable speaking Spanish. I have a friend, a young man, that uh, went over to Jim Meyer's ministry in Ukraine, and he didn't know a lick of Russian. He was actually a, a Texas boy, so he spoke English with a Texas accent. And uh, people like me will go over to Ukraine and teach in this Bible college, and we say what the, the theological statement in English. And then the Russian speaker translates that statement in Russian. And then I say it in English, and then the Russian speaker translates it in Russian. So guess what my friend heard? He heard everything said twice. He heard it said in English, and then he heard it said in Russian. And then he heard the next thing said in English, and heard the next thing in Russian. Two years later, this kid can preach in Russian. He can preach theological Russian. 
It's just amazing what we can become comfortable with. That's the illustration. And God can use you, and, and, uh, and you, you might say, well, I don't like to, I don't want to speak Russian. But if it's uh, eternal life or eternal separation from God for, uh, for, for this body of people, and uh, you need to learn Russian, you know what? You can become comfortable with that, whatever it is. That's an easy illustration, learning a language. There's lots of things that we might be asked to do that we're not comfortable with. Like spending a little extra time on mission. All right, the prologue for the mission. Let's turn to the scriptures in Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, that's in the Bible. It's after Matthew and Mark. It's the third gospel, chapter 24. Get a Bible, go. Luke 24. The method to understand the mission that I'm adopting is the last statements of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. You know what you can do with the last statements of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry? You can watch what the apostles do after those statements. And you know what you find? They do what he said in his last statements in his earthly ministry. They're like the summary of all that you've been trained for. It's like Jesus' commencement address. The disciples have been through three and a half years of ministry training. They go through these commencement addresses of the final statements in the Gospels. And then watch what they do in Acts and then Paul's letters and James and, and in Peter. They're fulfilling what Jesus has commanded. And that is the pattern for us. This is our access really to the New Testament. In Luke 24, 44, this is after the story of the stranger on the road to Emmaus when Jesus appeared to some disciples on the road and he did not reveal himself as Jesus but uh, until the very end and he showed them uh, what the word of God had said about the Christ and the necessity of his death. But slipping on down to the end of Luke in verse 44 of, of chapter 24, now Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the Old Testament, the way Jesus summarizes the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law of Moses, all the prophetic texts, and all the poetic texts. So that's the entirety of the Old Testament. Today we have that bound together in 39 books. That all the things which are written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Psalm 22 had to happen. The piercings of the hands and feet of Psalm 22 had to happen. The resurrection of Psalm 16 had to happen. The resurrection of, uh, of Abraham. God will provide himself a sacrifice, that sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice in Isaac in type, that he would come back to us in resurrection, that had to be fulfilled. All the things that are referencing Jesus Christ must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, that's the Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one. When you read Christ, Christos, this is a translation into Greek from the, from, the, from the Hebrew. Mashiach, Messiah. It means anointed one or smeared, which means designated with oil. That the Christ would suffer. So in the Old Testament, there is the prediction he would suffer, Psalm 53, rise again, for example, Psalm 16, from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Well, there it is. Jesus preached repentance for forgiveness of sins. It's not just faith alone. It's also repentance. Uh -uh, uh -uh, Uh-uh. Jesus mentions faith by saying repentance. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you better believe you just changed your mind. 
about your sufficiency, your goodness, whether or not you need a Savior. All these things are change of mind. The very essence of faith in Christ is repentance. Never let someone tell you that there is a two-step you got to do. That, well, first we repent and really feel it. That's not what it means. It means change of mind. And then we believe in Christ. You are believing in Christ as the change of mind. And what you... Prove it to me, Pastor, because it is the repentance in verse... um, I've, I don't know what verse that is. I've got it blocked out. Um, verse 47, that it is for forgiveness of sins. The repentance that he references here is for the forgiveness of sins. How do you get your sins forgiven? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You sit still and pull that out of your mouth right now and don't ever do that again. All right. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's faith in Christ is, is the change of mind. And it's a massive change of mind. Have you ever told someone about Jesus and it seemed completely irrelevant to them? Huh? Save me from my sins. What's the, what's sin? What is that? What do you mean? See, there is a, there's a whole mindset that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then the response of faith is a completely different way of thinking. And so the forgiveness of sins, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. All right, this is our kind of our prologue. This is what the apostles are doing. That's the story of Paul's life in Acts, the Christian life of Paul. I call the study Christian life of Paul on Sundays. You know why? Because there's been this bad teaching that happened in ultra-dispensationalism years back where Jesus was doing one thing, and, and he was offering the kingdom to Israel. But because that was one thing, then what Paul's doing is a different thing. And so we've got two different ages. You've got two different uh, uh, ministries. And, and what, what happened, there is a change of age at the resurrection. But, but what, importantly, Jesus, after resurrection, gave us what our marching orders are. And the gospel's written in the church age. The gospels were written in this dispensation. And so people tried to segregate out Jesus' teachings from Paul's teachings as though we're Pauline Christians and not Christian Christians. And so the Christian life of Paul, I'm just demonstrating, Paul is just doing exactly what Jesus taught. He's just saying exactly what Jesus said. I want to do a fun experiment on this. I've taught this recently. John 13, 34, love one another as I've loved you. Ephesians 5, uh, 20, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Paul says the exact same sentence as Jesus in John 13, 34. The exact same sentence structure. He just personalizes husbands to wives. Love one another as I've loved you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Watch it. Watch that comparison. And you're going to see Paul is not an originator of content. Paul is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says it. I got this from the Lord. And Jesus taught him, and he would receive revelations no one's allowed to talk about in 2 Corinthians 12. Anyway, so this is your prologue to the rest of the New Testament, that forgiveness of sins, repentance for forgiveness of sins, would be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says, your witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Luke wrote these words at the conclusion of his first volume of two volumes. And it's part of the seam between Luke and Acts, his second volume. 
This is, this is the A statement, and the B statement is in the beginning of Acts. Let's turn to it. And this is a great comparison, and I'm kind of rushing through, but the mission summary is Acts 1, 7, and 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said to them, I know, in your Bible, it's like Luke, and then John, and then Acts. And so you have to skip over John to go to Acts, but that's Luke's second volume. Luke wrote Luke and Acts under Paul. Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, they asked him a question that they didn't need to know the answer to. Is it now that you're going to bring, restore the kingdom? That's not an important question for you to know the answer to. You're not on mission yet, guys. See, this is not a politically motivated mission. Politics are going to come. The, the rulership of the nations or the rod of iron is coming. And it's right to call that a political type of thing because it is a real kingdom on real earth over the real nations. But watch what he says in verse 8. But you will receive power, you the 11 that are listening, the disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Now see, this is the New American Standard I put up here. The New American Standard tries to be a woodenly literal translation sometimes and it's even got bad grammar in verse 8. Because in Greek, it's good grammar to say both and then make a long list. Both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. See, that's not good English grammar, but it is what it says in the Greek words. Because it's good Greek grammar. I'm just, that's, some of you are like, what's he talking about? Don't worry about it. Don't worry. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's almost a word for word interlinear translation sometimes. Now, this is the mission summary, the way I'm framing it. We haven't gotten to what I'm calling the mission statement. Y'all know what that is. Why do you start with Luke? Because we're going to get to Matthew at the end. This is the mission summary. And I love this passage for a lot of reasons. This is the summary uh, outline of the book of Acts, verse 8. It's exactly geographically. First in Judea, and then uh, Jerusalem, and then Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. That's the, that's the outline of the book of Acts. It's awesome. We're on, and by the way, Sundays we're on Paul's third missionary journey. Right? Acts 19 and 20, where we're looking at Paul's letters he wrote from Ephesus to the Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians as we work through the Christian life of Paul. And it's fulfilling this exact pattern. But the thing I want to keep reminding you of is notice there's the promise from the Father. Remember Luke 24? You'll receive the promise from my Father. Now stay put. He tells them, you, you stay put and you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the promise of the Father. That's what he's referring to in Luke 24. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the defining feature of the time in which you live. It is that those who have Jesus Christ, those who are believers in Christ, have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. That's true of you and me. It was true of them, but the difference is they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do, and then they did have the Holy Spirit like we do. They experienced the transition And look what the Lord Jesus Christ says is the purpose of the defining feature of the age in which we live. The reason for the Holy Spirit to be upon you so that you receive power is you have a mission. This is the summary. You're going to be my witnesses. You are going to testify, bear witness, state evidence that you know me. You're going to be my witnesses. 
How do I witness, Pastor? Equip me to, to witness for Christ. You say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. You say those words. You find an opportunity to bear witness for Jesus Christ in, among the people that you better be loving. Find an opportunity and ask God for the opportunity. And when the door opens, and the door's open, you say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. You have just borne witness. Now, in a postmodern culture, that may not have the same punch that it used to have. But you know what? It probably does. It probably does. Because no matter what that person may say, they may say, hmm, I never thought about that. They may say, well, that's good for you. Or that's your truth. Or, well, I don't really believe that. Or, oh, you're one of those. It doesn't matter what they say or what they react in that moment because you have no idea what that seed will do as planted in those hearts. You can bear witness. Do you know, did you hear me just say all the apologetics you could possibly read? I want to do a study of apologetics with you. I want to do a 10-year course on apologetics and walk through all the different approaches in history and how it's all a subset of philosophy and how we can see how the philosophical debates over determinism and indeterminism have affected the different approaches of apologetics and how the, the inter-Nicene debates between the Christians that Christian hate on each other about apologetic strategies and you're not a good Calvinist because you use evidences and all this stuff. I love to go through that. I love it. I love it. I would love to walk through apologetics with you. I even want to show you how John Nelson Darby was a presuppositionalist before there even were presuppositionalists because he was a consistent Calvinist. I want to show that to you sometime if you're interested. But you know, you don't have to do that to bear witness for Christ. You don't have to know all the Christian evidences for creation and the young earth. It's good to know that stuff. It's good to be able to say the earth doesn't look old, it looks flooded, and then be able to back it up with 15 reasons why. Well, if you have carbon-14 in something, it means it's young. It doesn't, it's not old because it's, it's got a 10,000-year half-life. You know, that, just one little bullet point. Just throw a little, little bullet. It, it's nice to have that stuff, but you don't have to do that to bear witness for Christ. You can just say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Or you can say something a little even more forward. You ready? This is going to be really offensive. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus, my Savior, died for your sins, and it's his love that put him on that cross for you. Now, you just bore witness for Christ. Now, don't be a jerk. Don't, don't go hit someone with the, with the baseball bat of Jesus, okay? And, well, I just told him. I just hit everybody on my street. And all, everybody just hates me now. Build some relationships. Have some conversations. But you should bear witness for Jesus Christ. What do you believe? This is the easiest way to do it. What do you believe? I don't really know. That's really what you get. I mean, I don't want to be offensive, but that's pretty much because nobody really does know unless God tells you. <laughs> that's presuppositional apologetics for you. <laughs> and uh, I, they just, I, yeah, I just think, you know, and it's just, yeah, 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 be, be nice to people, be a good person. And now it would be really weird for us not to have what do I believe? I mean, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing. Well, I'm not going to share what I believe. See you later. No, you say, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And you've just borne witness of Christ. Okay. The mission motivation. Should we do it? Yes, we should. John 21. Let's hear the motivation for our mission in John chapter 21. Anybody know why I take us to John chapter 21 instead of John chapter 1? Anybody? Because it's the end of the gospel of John. It's the last statement of Jesus in John. See the pattern? Did everybody, that was too easy, Pastor. We were thought it was a hard question. This is an easy question. 
In fact, I went looking. I was like, well, what does the end of John say? Because I, I, I knew from really Matthew 28 and Acts 1, um, which is the end of, it's right before Jesus ascends in Acts 1. So I said, well, what's the end of John? And then I, I saw that. I was like, oh, that's beautiful the way this fits. And we will talk about this in detail, just introducing tonight. What am I going to go to in terms of the motivation? Verse 15. So when they finished breakfast, it's a delicious grilled fish breakfast from the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection body. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the Greek has agape, then phileo, and agapao, do you agape me? Yes, I phileo you. And people have made a big deal about that, and I'm really not sure it's that big a deal. One of those is the phileo that Peter says means I love you like a family member or a best friend or someone that I have great affection for. And, um, and the agape is more of the uh, self-sacrificial love of God that God so loved the world he gave. And so do you love me in the sense of obedience to me? And Peter says, yes, I, I'll go one better. I love you affectionately. And, um, and which I think for Peter means, of course, I agape you. Heck, I even phileo you. I think that's what he means, okay? Um, if there's a big difference. And uh, some scholars say, well, it doesn't matter. It was the conversation happened in Aramaic anyway. And that's arrogance to do that because John wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit in Greek. So you can't get to that conversation in Aramaic. You have to hear it in Greek. And that's God's design. If he wanted us to be messing around in that area, he would have given it to us in Aramaic. So he said to him, you know, just like the King James Only folks, if the Lord wanted you to, um, to know it in, uh, in Greek, he would have given you the Bible in Greek, but obviously he gave it to you in English and uh, King James English. So read it in King James. Okay. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said something the New America Standard totally missed. Bosco, feed my little sheep, feed my lambs. He didn't say tend. Tend is a general word. Bosco is a very specific word. He didn't say stand there and kind of do all the things. He said, feed them, feed them. And that's why I don't like this translation. The word that Jesus said to Peter is feed my lambs. That is exactly what we're going to hear from Jesus and the Great Commission to teach them to keep all that I've commanded you. Feed them the word. You feed my sheep what gives them spiritual growth and spiritual nourishment. Give them the energy they need to do what I have for them to do, which is a a wool crop in this illustration. He said again a second time, because, you know, Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus publicly uh, restores him three times. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And uh, I love that Peter is uh, consistent that you know, you know the answer. Please don't ask a third time, please. <laughs> yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, poimino, shepherd. And this they got right, shepherd my sheep, which is your general term. Poimino, uh, where we get the word that we translate pastor, but it really just means shepherd. And so we don't need to mess around with Latin too much. I like the word pastor uh, because I am one, but um, the, really, the word is uh, really in English is shepherd. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then he said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. That statement tells us this is taking Peter back to his denial of Christ three times. That's how we know for sure. It's not just a guess because it happens three times. Peter's grieved that he asked him a third time. That's, that's the exegetical basis for saying this is a reference right to Jesus being denied by Peter. He said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Jesus says again, what do you think he said? Huh? Feed, yeah. He said Bosco again. He said feed. So New American Standard blew it twice. Can translate this verb twice, but they were consistent in mistranslating it. They said tend. The word is feed. So feed, shepherd, feed. How do you shepherd the sheep? You feed them. (laughs) That's the most important thing. Well, you led them all over the place, but they starved to death, shepherd. You kind of blew it, okay? You didn't get anywhere, but the sheep grew a great wool crop because they ate well, and so we were enriched in our production. You did your job, shepherd. You fed the sheep. So um, anyway, so why am I calling this the mission motivation? Because we have the instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ to feed them, to feed them, to, to tend, to shepherd them. That's the mission that he gives the disciples. It's exactly what he's going to say in Matthew in, a di- in different words, but the same task. Do your job of shepherding. But then look what he says. He says, do you love me? If you love me, the implication, if you love me, then you're going to do this. Because Jesus associates his disciples' love for him with their obedience of his commands. And so the motivation for our obedience to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is always our love for him. If you love me, then do this. How, do you gonna sh- how are you, will you show your love for the Lord Jesus Christ? You will do what he has commanded you. That's John 14 and also here, a major theme in the beloved disciples. book. By the way, John pretty much owns the concept of love in, uh, in his writing compared to any other writer. Everyone else talks about it, but John talks about it more than anyone else in the five writings we have from the Apostle John. And what are those five uh, books of the New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament? Five of them were written by John. We all know the first four because they're called John. The Gospel of John, that's John for short. And then 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And you all know the last book that he wrote is the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse. That's Greek for Revelation. And uh, that's just all it means is Revelation. And it's not the Revelations. That always tip off. I read the Revelations. Well, uh, it's the book of Revelation. And it is written also by the Apostle John. So anyway, this is the motivation for mission accomplishment in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have your love properly fixed then your obedience will be in its place. And if your obedience is is not legalistic, but oriented properly, it'll be motivated by this love. And you can't break those two apart. If you break love out of obedience, you either say, I love him, but I don't obey him. And so you don't love him. Or you obey him, but you don't love him. That's just legalism. That's just religion. It's a relationship. That's why we say it's a relationship because the motivation for what we do is our love for him. And if you're struggling with this, I encourage you to introduce it as an item in your prayer life. I confess, I give thanks, I petition on behalf of others, I request on behalf of my own needs. When you get to that fourth paragraph of what you need, start telling them, I need to figure out loving you better. Help me do this like I ought to. That's a wonderful thing to ask for because it is a specific request for wisdom. And we know from James chapter one that if you ask for wisdom and you expect and believe that God will provide what he wants to provide in that wisdom, then you will receive it. The mission statement this will occupy a great deal of our time in what's left of our study on mission, which is uh, drawing to a rapid close. We'll be done with this by Christmas. All right, the mission statement. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do you say into the name? Why don't you say in the name? 
Right there. It says in the New American Standard, in the name, you say into the name. Because the Greek preposition is ace, which is always translated into uh, as, a, as a first choice. You would only say in if there's a reason in context to. And what we're seeing is baptism is an identification with and so it's baptizing into someone. It's being identified. This is what baptism is. Friends, this, if, you're not, if you're not here, if you're not here, you're not on mission. This is the statement. This is the deal. This is why we're here. What in the world else are we doing? That's lesson one. I reference you back to lesson one. Okay, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe, keep, or obey all that I commanded you and the promise, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the specific, explicit statement of the mission, which gives you specific marching orders, go and make disciples, and then tells you how to do it. You got to evangelize them, which concludes with a baptism, a, a water baptism of proclamation that I believe in Christ as my Savior. They're already saved by grace through faith, but the water is the proclamation that person makes. It's a bearing of witness. The first witness you make as a believer is I believe in Christ. You tell the world with baptism. And then the... Um, the the making disciples by teaching to keep all that I've commanded you, which is why we teach, 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 teach. That's why all the teaching, this is philosophy of ministry time for Preston City Bible Church. I don't really need to be up here teaching if I didn't have these marching orders, but I do, so I need to, and now I'm doubled down because this is our mission. By the way, I could have said I teach because teaching was effective in my life, it helped me, I needed it, and then perhaps I can help others. It's good motivation, but now whether I liked it or felt it or wanted it or whatever, I'm on, I'm served notice. I've got to teach. I've got to teach. And it's not just teaching what he said, it's teaching you to do what he said. That's why I've given you tonight, how to witness, how do I witness for Christ? Just tell, just say it. I believe in Jesus as my savior. Our mission at Preston City Bible Church, I've been asked this before and I'm sorry to go long, but I'm not seeing a lot of people concerned about it. So I know the seating is uncomfortable, but, uh, but our hearts are warmed by the word. So here you go, here you go. I was asked, what's our mission statement for the church? I'm like, 66 books, 1,500 years, three continents, 40 different authors, one consistent message. Our mission statement's the Bible. No creed but the Bible. And you know, mission statement is a popular corporate thing to do that we got out of the military because the military's got bullets and people's lives on the line. So we write missions and it's a big deal. And I learned a lot about writing mission statements before I was ever asked by anyone that knew anything about corporate practices, how to organize our resources and business and get, you know, do, do a good job. But I appreciate this organizational structure. But, you know, this always bothered me that I was asked, what's our mission? What's the church's mission? That's like, um, well, the word. I mean, the spiritual growth. I mean, being, being what the Lord wants us to be, uh, doing what he said, loving one another. I mean, you could pick out any, uh, any statement you want from Scripture that Jesus has given and try to give a summary command. But I think he's given the church, the body of Christ, this mission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I don't think it's on me to pick out a mission. And I've checked out various church mission statements. And um, I, I don't always agree that that's a good summary, but here's how I've tried to do it for our church. We at Preston City Bible Church are bearing witness for Christ in Eastern Connecticut and its environs. Where did I get that bearing witness for Christ in this location? Where did I get it? Where did I get it? Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses. I mean, I'm, that's how Rosalind's thinking. We need to get our mission directly from the mission statement in Scripture. So the first thing I'll say is we're bearing witness for Christ in these environs. That, that's a big word that means here. <laughs> 
these environs, okay, by making disciples. Where'd I get it? Where'd I get it? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Make disciples. By making disciples, how? Through evangelism. Where'd I get it? By baptizing. Baptism does not save you. Baptism are people that are saved. It's for a believer. So baptism is a reference to what you do to bring someone to baptism. It isn't like we're running through the street with, a, with water and, hey, well, actually, we would have to do it biblically since it is immersion. We'd have to drive through the street with a flatbed with a big tub in the back and just be grabbing people out of their houses. Hey, I, I, you don't understand what's happening right now, but you'll understand later. And just dunk them and then, and then you know, lower them back down gently. Don't chunk them off. But unless we're in a real hurry, okay, because, you know, the Lord's coming back any time. So we just, sorry, you just have to be baptized. I mean, the, the Mormon church, which apparently now you're not supposed to call them that, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Don't call us Mormons. The Mormon church, um, uh, they baptize people who are in absentia. So you, are, you go up and you, you proxy baptize. So you will be baptized in the name of someone else, for somebody else. So they've done, I saw an article by a cult watch organization that said they've, they've done Hitler two or three times under different names. And uh, they'll, they'll baptize, uh, you know, proxy baptize for dead people. And they just get the roles of who all has been dead. And they, you know, run up ancestry.com. And, well, they weren't baptized Mormons, so we got bat- proxy baptized. They're trying to catch everybody. It's really nice of them, you know, to make sure that everyone gets in under the wire. And um, I like my way of the flatbed truck better if we're going to do this without people's consent. But the, the baptism of the Bible is always believers. It's always someone that believes in Christ. It's the Ethiopian eunuch. Hey. I'm a believer. What's to stop us from doing baptism in this water over here? That's, that's, the, that's the biblical picture of it. Look, look at it. It's never a baby. It's never a child. It's always a believer. In fact, um, I do baptize children, but only if they're believers. And we might, we might have a baptism of a child this, uh, this Saturday. Uh, but if, if we do, it, it, he's a believer <laughs> for sure. All right. Through, through, through evangelism and teaching of the word of God. Where'd I get it? Where'd I get? We're going to make disciples uh, by teaching and uh, by evangelism and teaching of God's word. Where'd I get it? Yeah, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. by teaching uh, to keep all that I've commanded you. And for the purpose of spiritual growth, where'd I get it? Well, the last thing Peter says in Second Peter 3, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, okay? To equip all those who fellowship to participate in God's mission of bearing witness by disciple making. See, I put recursion in here. You'll never, every, every new successive group will continue this process because of Matthew 19. Who is Jesus talking to when he says make disciples? Who's he talking to when he tells them to make disciples? The disciples. What's the story up to that point in Matthew? How he made disciples of them? That's the lesson of what Jesus was doing with the 12. He was making disciples. And so what are they to do now that they're disciples? Make disciples. What is the chartered requirement of a disciple? Make more so you have to have recursion. You have to keep doing this. So as you grow up to be a disciple, you make more disciples. And the horror to me is that we have people that may think that the word of God is important. They may think that, you know, it's important to know about all these things in God's word, but they don't understand they're on mission and their job is to make more disciples. Hebrews chapter five. You should all be teachers by now, but you can't. You have to give you, I have to give you baby food. You should be eating meat. You should all be teachers by now. Does that keep you up at night? that the writer of Hebrews says everybody present should be a teacher by now. How is it possible that if we have pastors and teachers, 
gifted people who are supposed to stand in front, as Paul says, and teach the way we do. How is it that everybody's supposed to be a teacher? It's because we all have part of this mission. We're all making disciples. Well, I don't have anybody to make disciples with. Well, I would tell you what Jesus said. You need to ask the Lord of the harvest. Ask him, John 4, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. That's Lord, I'm available, send me, let me be part of this mission. Let us do some work in Rhode Island, God. Let us have some, some impact on these children. Let us tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this is a reflection of what the Word of God says we as a church should be about. And I'm, it's, it's pretty generic. Not a lot of, it's kind of vanilla, I guess, because it's just straight out of the Bible. But that's what we're here to do. Do you need to grow up in this? Is there your own spiritual growth in this statement? Yes, because you need to grow up to, so you can serve in the mission. But it's not just grow up so I can have a good life or I can receive my blessings or whatever. You're growing up because you have mission work to do. And yes, there's a campaign and there are rewards for service. But the, the reward is not participation. I, I showed up and I grew up. Participation trophy. There's Preston City Bible Church, a, a suggested mission statement that we've been working through with the board to reflect on the scriptures, which I've considered to- totally irrelevant and useless without an understanding in every heart of how this comes straight out of the mission statement of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been my objective tonight. I, pr- I challenge you to ponder these things. We'll look at them in more detail in the coming weeks. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, our God, we love you and praise you. Thank you for the privilege of studying these things together. Thank you for these little boys. They're able to concentrate and learn these things and hear them young. And I pray for them and for all of us that we'll grow up with a mission focus. We'll grow spiritually to be more aware of our responsibility that you've placed on us to make disciples. Father, make us aware of those around us that, uh, that can... Uh, can truly have that open door that will respond to the to the gospel that will grow up in the word that will be about your business and father we continue to pray for the work in rhode island and in connecticut and through new england for these children that they would come to know christ as their savior jesus name amen